0: Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to our generous underwriters on Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, Visit lcef.org for more information, and Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Tuesday, March 28th, we're studying John chapter 17, verses 1 to 10. In today's text, Jesus lifts his eyes to heaven and he prays to his Father. He prays that his Father would glorify the Son, so that the Son would glorify the Father. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have this regular guest, the Rev. Dr. Adam Kuntz. Pastor Kuntz serves as pastor and evangelist at Trinity Lutheran Church in Denver, Colorado. Pastor Kuntz, welcome back to Sharper Iron.
1: Thanks for having me. It's great to be back.
0: As we get started today, Pastor Kuntz, let's talk context. It's still Monday, Thursday in John's Gospel. We're starting chapter 17. We've heard Jesus give a very lengthy discourse there in the upper room and, and today we're starting a, a bit of a new section but there's connections so help us with some context as we prepare to look at the first part of John 17
1: the uh, overall context is that Jesus has done the signs that that John laid out for us earlier in the book and you've covered those and the listeners if they didn't listen the first time can go back and listen to all of that the signs have been accomplished and now uniquely in John is a very long discussion and beginning with our chapter, a prayer, but it's usually called the Upper Room Discourse, discourse just being a word to cover long teachings of Jesus. So you've got five of them in Matthew and in John, you have teaching all over the place, but this is the longest single, let's say, unit or group of teaching. So the Upper Room Discourse, and this began chapters ago, as you said, and what's happening is that Jesus is readying his disciples for a time when he will no longer be with them, exactly. So, as is really common with John, there's so much that you could link particularly to Jesus' ascension and his sending of his disciples into all the world to preach the gospel. But, as with so much else, what Matthew, Mark, and Luke narrate in John is interpreted or explained So what we're getting here is preparation for the ascension of Jesus and the mission of the church, uh, a final teaching, a final summation. And in chapter 17, we begin with uh, a phrase. We'll have to talk about the origin of this phrase, but we begin with the high priestly prayer, which is Jesus's prayer to his father concerning particularly his disciples in their relationship to the world. Hmm.
0: Let's go ahead and talk about the title that is usually given, High Priestly Prayer. How does how does that title fit this prayer, or does it fit this prayer? What do you think?
1: Yeah, it's one of those things that you're going to have uh, your pastor is going to say sort of offhandedly, because his seminary professor or college you know professor probably said it offhandedly, and it's the kind of thing that's going to be in your header in your English Bible. So it probably says in your English Bible... Uh, something like the high priestly prayer or something like that at the beginning of chapter 17 before you actually start the Bible text. And those those headers are kind of dangerous because they set up for you what something's supposed to be about. And it could be true, but it might not be. It's not a really old phrase in the whole scheme of reading the Bible. The Bible is a book thousands of years old, and the high priestly prayer, so far as I've ever found, is a phrase that tracks to a man who was a bible scholar, German bible scholar in the middle of the 20th century. So that seems like a long time ago to a lot of people, but in the history of the bible and of people reading the bible, that was 2 seconds ago and his name was Ernst Käsemann. He was a German Lutheran in a in a sense of the word scholar who uh wrote quite a bit about John as his uh, teacher Rudolf Bultmann had r- written a lot about John, and quite a quite a bit, and, and a lot more than Bultmann. He wrote a lot about Paul. So he is, so far as I can tell, the origin of the phrase, the high priestly prayer. Is it good or bad? Meh, you know. Um, <laughs> it's good in this way that Kaseman is trying to say, was trying to say, and then others are just sort of repeating after him, that what Jesus is doing in chapter 17 is like the prayer of the high priest of Israel on the Day of Atonement for all of Israel. Now mm-hmm. the the issue there, and it's like okay, I can see that I can see some similarity. The issue I have and the reason that I'm only giving it a yeah, is that uh, the the priest is explicitly. I mean the the priest is explicitly in Hebrews. The high priest is. Is a stopgap measure until our great high priest, Christ Jesus, comes. So, Kazeman was really into seeing high priests all over the place. His doctoral dissertation, and therefore also his first book, was on Hebrews. (laughs) Okay. Mm -hmm. So, he's looking at Jesus Christ, he's seeing a high priest. That's fine. It's not like there's nothing there. But the issue that I have there is that uh, there's a little bit of trouble you're going to have expressing the sense of newness. Uh, or the reality that the high priests of old were were in themselves and also in their sacrifices insufficient to accomplish what the atonement, what the sacrifice of Jesus accomplishes. So I'm okay with it. I mean, I'm not, uh, you know, scribbling it out of my Bible in the header there everywhere I see it or something, but I'm not wild about it. And the, the reason I'm not wild about it is because these kind of things that people repeat because they heard them from a professor or a pastor or something, is that they, they tend to captivate the mind and to make it unable to see certain things like, was Jesus not the high priest earlier? Or how does his priesthood connect to uh, what's about to happen in his sacrifice? Um, and how does that connect to what we say is going on with the atonement? all of those things, I want the mind to remain flexible so that it can be subject to the Bible text, not subject to, I think, an insightful and clever but limited idea that a certain scholar had.
0: Mm. Yeah, we... I often think about this, especially when it comes to the parables and the titles yep. that are sometimes yep. assigned to parables, they can color our understanding of the parable before we actually read the text and see what the text says. And if, if we only approach it from that perspective, we might miss what the text actually says. That's right. Yep. Concerning the the high priestly prayer, I do think, I mean, Jesus functions as a priest within the prayer, especially when he intercedes for his disciples. Mm-hmm. I mean, so I, I think that that makes it legitimate. I I did in some of my reading in preparation for our conversation, in one of the commentaries I consulted, they they actually traced the title, The High Priestly Prayer, all the way back to David Catreus, the Lutheran theologian, which I I don't I didn't look any farther than that. Well that would but, be but a, that would be probably more impressive than saying it's from the nineteen fifties. <laughs> Yeah, so that takes it, I mean, it's, it takes it a little bit farther back, at least, uh, for, what that's, for what that's worth. But I, I, again, I, I think it is helpful to, you know, to have a title is not necessarily a bad thing, as long as we make sure we pay attention right. to what the text actually says right. and look at it that way. So thinking about it then within the context of John, particularly on the heels of this discourse of Jesus, yeah. he's been talking to his disciples to this point. And now at this point, it I mean, the text says he lifts his eyes to heaven and he now speaks to his Father. Right. So what's the function of the prayer in terms of the, like, are the disciples meant to overhear it and learn from it?
1: Or how does it function in that sense? The prayer is a lot like the prayers that the pastor offers during the, the church service in that they are not directed to the people, they're not direct speech like the sermon is, but they are certainly meant to be overheard because what the disciples are now going to learn is uh, uh, how Jesus understands particularly his work and their work. That is, his work on their behalf and then their work uh, in his name and how that will relate to a world that is obviously hostile to him and therefore also to them. There's a matchup throughout John's Gospel and also in John's three letters between the way that Jesus Christ is and the way that his church is, which makes sense if you think it's a, it's a bridegroom and a bride and they share a life. They are one flesh. So they're sharing all of these things. There's also, I think something to realize is that there's no such thing as a, as a prayer that doesn't teach. Prayers are always preaching. Prayers are always teaching. So if a prayer is overheard or if it's, you know, uh, intentionally to be heard by a certain group, the distinction between that and a sermon is just the is just the direction of the words. The words are going up to God rather than out to the audience, the congregation. There's no difference in whether it's teaching or not, you know. So it's not like prayer is less serious than a sermon or something, or prayer is less serious than a book someone might write. It's always doing the same things. It's it's teaching you how to think and teaching you what to care about and teaching you what to set your heart on. So prayer is just doctrine differently directed. Mm, yeah. Well, and even in, in John's gospel, I
0: think it's right before the, la- the raising of Lazarus yep. where Jesus prays. And isn't that where he
1: says, I'm, I'm not saying this for my own <laughs> right. sake.
0: I'm saying it for the sake of the people around Right,
1: me. Right. right. Yeah, which is helpful and, and somewhat rare in the gospels that Jesus would say, you know, I'm not saying this for my own sake because there's so much that he doesn't need to say for his own sake, namely, everything, basically, right, is that the words that Jesus is saying, whether he's praying them, or whether he's preaching them, or whether he's saying them in conversation, in some sort of interaction with someone, all of those words are for our benefit, even when they seem to exclude us, as does the, the high priestly prayer.
0: Uh, thinking about this prayer on the context of Monday Thursday, we're, we've we been in the upper room, I think, with Jesus for the most part so far, and in chapter 18, John's going to tell us he's going to go across the Kidron Valley to a garden, and that's where he's going to be betrayed. And I know this there may not be a firm answer to this, but how does this prayer of Jesus relate to other things that happen on Monday Thursday? And I'm thinking especially about the way that he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane in the Synoptics. I think later, after this, chronologically speaking, but I'm not not sure. How do you how do you relate this
1: to the other things we know that happened on Monday Thursday? These are all things that are setting you up for what is going to happen. But in John's Gospel, um, I, I I think I think maybe people think John's Gospel. There's a lot of misconceptions about it, and maybe one of the biggest ones is that somehow it's simple. It. <laughs> it's, 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 I I don't think that. Yeah. Right. That's great. But you know, people will run around handing out copies of John's gospel to people that have never read the Bible before. Right. I, I think that is, you know, I, I was gonna say wildly mistaken. Now I said it anyway, but it's mistaken because John's gospel is very, very exact when and where it wants to be. So it's, it's the gospel that causes us to know that Jesus is ministering for, between two and three years, because John actually will very, with great exactitude, track time when he wants to. But when he doesn't want to, like on Maundy Thursday, he just doesn't care, you know? And, and, and what that's telling you is that John is very much more interested, not so much in the, you know, the different, the different events, as in the relationship between, let's say, the significance of Maundy Thursday and the significance of Good Friday. So he is preparing for sacrifice. He's not being clear about what is being, you know, wh- what the setting of all this is and how it relates to everything else. And and so it's really hard. I, I try not, I just want to let John live in his own world the way he likes to. And I find okay. that to be more sort of productive than saying, where exactly is John fitting in with the other three? because Because John isn't even trying much of the time you know, the basic outline is there, but you know, wh- where is this in relation? I don't know. I don't know. Fair enough. Okay. that's. that's <laughs>
0: I don't either. So, <laughs> and I suppose, you know, it's, it's not wildly inappropriate to give people copies of the scriptures. We want the, no. pe- we want people to read the word of God. No. But I, I think what, I, I think probably what you're, you're getting at is, is John, maybe the first
1: one that we should no. read? That's, no. I've always kind of wondered about that too. I I think if you wanted something, you know, sometimes people will say I've done this with people coming into the church. I'll say read Mark and I'm basically just doing that because we all have atrocious attention spans. And so <laughs> I pick this I pick the shortest one. Right. But probably your best one like how does the Bible fit together? Who is Jesus? Stuff like that would be would be Matthew. It's Matthew or it's Luke. Um it's it's not it's probably not Mark, um, and it's definitely not John because John is not. John is extremely profound, and the more that you know the Old Testament, the clearer John will become. But we don't we don't presume that in new Christians or in people, who, or certainly in people who who aren't even yet Christians. So uh, maybe we should print copies of Matthew and just hand that out because Matthew shows his work. You know, John is like a math genius that never shows his work. You know. Yeah. Um, Matthew carefully shows you what he did and how he got the answer. John's just like, boom, isn't this amazing? And you're like, it is great, but I don't know how you got there. You know? So <laughs> the more that you know the Old Testament, the more you'll see where John's work is coming from. Right, right. So and you know, with with the
0: connection to Monday, Thursday and the synoptics, I suppose at least one thing that and I, I appreciate what you're saying about let John be John, and and maybe we, we won't know exactly where this falls, quote, on the timeline, mm-hmm. but I do, I mean, I think you see at least a little bit of a relationship between the prayer that we know Jesus offers in the garden from the synoptics, especially on the matter of submitting to his Father's will. And I think that, you know, th- and that's been a theme in John yeah. quite, I mean, quite all along, that he is one with the Father, he's doing what the Father has given, no more, no less. Right. And, and I think that continues on into this prayer that at least is
1: part of what Jesus is praying there in That's the right. Garden of Gethsemane, as, right.
0: as the other three evangelists record.
1: Yeah, and th- it's a very beautiful way to look at the, what Jesus' work is. That not only is Jesus praying for submission to the Father's will, but that it is indeed God's will that he should be you know, bruised for our iniquities. That, that this is not some sort of tragic accident. I think sometimes when people go, particularly to the Holy Week services, they, they look morose in a way as if, you know, this is like a 19-year-old that died in a car crash. You know, you don't have to skip out of Good Friday services, but there's nothing, there's nothing tragic, either in the narrow sense of that word or in the, or in the more common, broad sense of that word, There's nothing tragic about the death of Jesus. There is everything divinely intended about the death of Jesus, which is why his prayers are so full of submission to the divine will. There's something sad, but not tragic as in, oh, why is this happening? Or whatever the case may be, however you want to think about tragedy. This is intended by God for the salvation of mankind. That's why it's called Good Friday. Yeah. Yeah well and we've we've talked
0: about this at several points during the upper room discourse that as a as a quote farewell speech it's different in tone than what you might think a farewell speech might normally sound right. like because he you know Jesus knows that it is his glorification that's coming and it has a very confident tone throughout right. and even i think that continues into this prayer that it, it's not a you know woe is me kind of tone at all, but rather this is what is needed. This is for the glory of the Son and of the Father, and it's for the good of the disciples. Right, and so in, in that way, this this text very much fits with what's come before. Right, yeah. Okay, so just in terms of the, the prayer as a whole, you and I were talking a little bit about this before we started, that, you know, there's a, we break it verse 10 today, which maybe isn't the, the way that it often gets structured. What, what all are we going to encounter in this high priestly prayer? I, I do the so-called high priestly prayer. I, I think this is the longest prayer that we
1: have from Jesus where we know the content. So what are we going to see? We're going to see his understanding, I think, particularly of, of three things. One is his understanding of his own work. And so John's gospel is like this all over the place, and it's like this here, that you get enormous insight into Jesus Christ's own understanding of what he was here on earth to do. That's always helpful. The second thing is that you have an understanding, uh, you gain an understanding of what Jesus wants his church to be about. So like I said before, I think that John 17 should sit alongside Matthew 28, Mark 16, and so on for our understanding of what the church ought to be about. Now it's phrased in John's own words, his sort of particular vocabulary, but what, is, what are his disciples here to do? Who are they and what are they here to do? And the third thing is his understanding, uh, which is so beautiful all over John's gospel, of the immediate access of the Son of God to his Father, which he's gonna grant us by grace, but which is his by nature. And that that immediacy and that clarity that he may speak to the Father at any time, and it's the Father's delight to hear him, which you hear when, in the points in John's Gospel, such as the baptism, um, and and other places where the heavens open up, but that that access which will now also be that of the sons of God, right, who will delight to call the Father in heaven their Father too, my Father and your Father. Jesus will say after the resurrection. So um, those three things, I think, are, are your, your big things to look at as you go throughout chapter 17.
0: So with that introduction, let's take a look at our text for today. This is John 17, verses 1 to 10. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, To give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Pastor Kuntz, you mentioned something about John having a, a specific vocabulary or a special vocabulary. I think that comes into play with this text. Talk a little bit about that. What's the? Does he
1: have a, a special vocabulary, and if so, what? What is it? His vocabulary is not special or, or unique to him in the sheer words. As if you know, John is you know the only place in the Bible you could find the word discombobulate or something. It's it's not just the sheer words themselves. It's the way that he uses the words and the particular weight he puts on them, and you can make a list like this from almost anywhere in John's Gospel. But in just the ten verses that you just read, I would the list that I would make would have to do with glory, name, uh, world, and believe. And those, and you you could add others. Perhaps you could maybe talk about truth, but. The ones that I just rattled off, all of those have their own set of events and teachings mm-hmm. connected with them. So let's just take mm-hmm. glory as as the first example because it's all over what we what we just heard. And when we think of glory in modern day American English, we probably think of something that's like, you know, I'm covered in glory because I won the Super Bowl or something. But yeah. glory in John's gospel. Glory in John's gospel is something that is always going to be connected to the accomplishment of God's will. And it's going to get narrower and narrower to the point where glory will have to do with the lifting up of the Son of Man as the serpent was raised up in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. So the way that John builds things is by coming back to them, not in a totally circular fashion, like when you talk to somebody whose mind is slipping on and on some sort of five or 10 or 15 minute cycle, you're having the same conversation over again with the person. And if you sit there for 30 minutes, you'll have the same conversation twice or three times or four times. It's not like that with John. Um, the way that he comes back to things is sort of spiral fashion. So you're above where you just were a few minutes ago, but Now you see something slightly different because you're at a different perspective. And so that's the way that John sort of flies the plane and shows you the landscape. So maybe when you were reading, for example, you know, the very famous passage, we just had it, um, as we record this in most of our churches last Sunday from John three, uh, you get the very famous idea that, uh, the son of man must be lifted up and, uh, whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Well. Eventually John is going to show you that that is God's glory. That's the son's glory. That's going to be his glorification by the father. That's the father's intention. But in chapter three, you don't, you don't really know that yet, or the word glory is not connected to that event yet, but it will be. And the way that that works is that John is moving spiral wise toward the goal of the cross and the resurrection. So the very first thing that Jesus says is, Father, the hour has come. That's another, that's another John term, sort of hour. I mean, we, we have our own, you know, what hour of the day is it? But for him, there's only one hour, and that hour is the time when the Son of Man is lifted up. So John is moving you in this kind of spiral-wise flight pattern so that you begin to see that glory has to do with the cross and the cross has to do with the death of the Son of God, and the death of the Son of God is going to mean life for the world. So John gets you there eventually. That's why it's so rich, because not only is he showing you things from the Old Testament, he's showing you things even from his own writing that become fuller and fuller with, with meaning um, the farther along we go.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm glad you mentioned the word hour too because that's where you talk about the specific language that John loves to repeat, that word hour and the word glory, just to to note that spiral thing that you're talking about back in John chapter 12 where Jesus for the first time says that the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. Right. That's where he then tells them, you know, this is going to happen when he is lifted up from the earth to draw all people to himself and John the, the narrator tells us he said that to show what kind of death he was going to die. Kind of see how that that spiral works there. Right. As those same words come back again here in the high priestly prayer, fully or more and more revealing to us what Jesus is is teaching. We're seeing it here in this prayer. We're going to keep looking at it on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Adam Coons about John 17 this morning. We will be right back. You stick around. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, March 28th. We're studying John chapter 17, verses 1 to 10 with the Reverend Dr. Adam Kuntz. He is pastor and evangelist at Trinity Lutheran Church in Denver, Colorado. Pastor Kuhn's prayer of the break, we were talking about specific language that John uses in a spiral fashion to keep revealing who Jesus is and what he has come to do. We're talking about the words hour and glory especially, and as you noted, that also relates to the, the word for life that John uses, and that's really where Jesus goes. He says, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So help us keep connecting these dots as Jesus is praying.
1: The idea of authority is not one that we usually think of in connection with the word author, but we should more often because it has to do with bringing something into being, uh, not with sheer power to do or say whatever you want to do, and Jesus is very clear here that the authority that he's been given over all flesh, which from this perspective, he's always had, it's part of what the father gives to the son. That authority over all flesh is specifically to, for the purpose of giving eternal life to all whom you have given him. All whom you have given him is a, is, a, is a reference back to the discussion of the Good Shepherd back in chapter 10 about what the Father has given him and how no one can pluck them from his hand which our our Lutheran confessions and the formula of Concord talk about in connection with the doctrine of the election of grace. It's very beautiful to realize that these things, and so our destiny in Christ is in Christ's hands. And that the authority that he has been given is for the giving of life. It is not for sheer command in the way that you might think Someone who is jealous and grasping, but finally gets power in your company or over the family inheritance or something might have, you know, quote, authority. Jesus's authority is for the purpose of giving eternal life. Now that eternal life is in verse three, simply the knowledge of the true God, which is the father and the son here. Um, the Spirit is the one who, especially in the previous couple of chapters, comes to make these things known, to unfold Christ to those whom Christ uh, would be known by. Mm. So, well, yeah, go ahead. Keep going.
0: No, no, keep going. Keep that, going.
1: I mean, so I, I think when people think about eternal life, I think that we usually think first of something delayed. And that simply is not the way the Bible talks about it delayed is the full enjoyment of eternal life. Yes, no doubt. Um, a soul united to an undying body, uh, a body that is not riddled by the effects of sin, a soul that does not have to any longer do battle with sin. Yes, that's delayed. That's not yet. That's, that's going to come. That's, that's part of our promised inheritance. But the idea that eternal life, because we're not fully enjoying it, is somehow delayed is simply not what the bible says eternal life is present here now in the knowledge of the true god so when you are reading the scriptures or you're studying theology you are enjoying <laughs> not yet fully but you are enjoying eternal life because you have it now eternal life is the believer's present possession
0: hmm. Well, that that was from John chapter five, where Jesus says, "You know, the hour is coming and is now here. Right. When the dead will hear the the voice of the Son of God, and the dead and those who hear will live." Right. So, I mean, yeah, this is eternal life. You have it right now by knowing the true God and and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And again, that I mean, that takes us back into what John fourteen and other places in the John the Gospel of John, where Jesus. Very clearly says, if you want to know the Father, then you have to know Me. Right? I am the way, yeah. the truth. I mean, so again, that the spiral nature of John is evident just in these verses.
1: No, I think I think nowhere more than at the end, because what what yeah. happens at the end, and what happens in chapter seventeen, but but in events as well as teachings, right. certainly after this, is that there there becomes such a fullness that it's actually difficult. To even begin to, it's like, it's like you have so many things you, you have no hope of ever cataloging them all because what, what is now present is such a fullness of teaching and significance and beauty that it's really difficult to pick apart more than three words at a time without occupying an hour. I mean, I'm, I'm surprised we've gotten this far, to be honest with you. That's right. Yeah.
0: That's right. Yeah, I know. It is. Like, how are we going to get through this whole text? Well, we'll we'll hit the highlights. Yeah. This is such a a wonderful, I mean, yeah, there's so much packed in here. So let's, just for the the sake of of trying to keep going then, let's let's move into the next verse, verse four. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And even into verse five, because I think there's maybe some possibility for some misunderstanding here where Jesus prays, now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So we've been talking about glory as especially connected to the, the cross yeah. and the lifting up of the Son of Man. Right. And now Jesus is talking about glory that he had before the world existed. So how, how does that factor yeah. in all that?
1: So this is this is where you have to just let the words begin to have the, the range of meaning that they do, and some some people are impatient with that or their, their minds don't work that way, and you just need to adjust, especially with John. So if you look at the three different discussions of glory in four and five, I glorified you on earth, okay, when was that or how did that work? Having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, he hasn't yet accomplished The crucifixion. So, four discusses the things that are signs that he was sent by God that we already got in the book, stopping at chapter 12. That glorification is now leading, and now, Father, glorify me. So, this is something for which he's asking, something that hasn't yet happened glorify me in your own presence this is a marvelous way to think about what is happening at the cross. Mm. You know, because I think not only with Jesus's cross, people, you know, people imagine, you know, the, the father is just absent. He's just gone. Uh, And forsaking is, is not absence. Forsaking is, is the very, is the reality that, you should be there in a certain way and you're not, but I'm still still in a relationship with you. Otherwise I can't, I mean, I don't, I don't say that some random guy I drove past on the on the road on the way into work today is forsaking me if I never see him again in my life. Glorify me in your own presence. The father is there. The father is there. Now the son is dying for the life of the world but the father is there and john is perhaps the gospel where it's clearest that the cross is the father's intention hmm. okay so glorify me in your own presence so that's 2 and then 3 with the glory that i had with you before the world existed and this is where john is just simply marvelous and you know his symbol is always the eagle this is where he's soaring because What he's seeing is that the glory that the eternal Son of God had, go all the way back to chapter 1, the Word was with God and the Word was God, the glory that the eternal Son of God had because of who he is, because he's begotten of the Father alone, that glory is precisely what he is manifesting, or we could say showing forth or displaying on the cross. Now, how does that work? Because, you know, I mean, the cross is just so horrific and it works because it is the place where in the flesh of God's son, both God and man are reconciled in the way that the son of God before the world existed was doing the will of his father. I mean, there was, there was never a problem there. They were in complete harmony. At the cross the eternal son of god is in complete harmony with the father's will but now he is in the flesh in that harmony in the flesh in that union in the flesh in that communion and that is going to make the cross a place of utter and complete reconciliation so paul who i find always links up with john in very interesting ways because they're both sort of you know thinkers uh, in sort of independent ways, Paul is going to say, God was reconciling the world to himself, was. It's already done by the time Paul is Mm. talking about these things in 2 Corinthians 5, was reconciling the the world to himself in Christ Jesus. So that is where John is going to say, this is God's glory, that man should be reconciled to him in the flesh and blood of Christ Jesus which happens on the cross. So that's that's why the son of God is asking for those things there in verse 5. Wow.
0: I man, that's that is incredible. I'm going to have to to think on that quite a while. I I guess I I had always I've always thought about verse 5 more in terms of Jesus ascension, which I suppose is is related to what you said, but if we don't connect it to the cross, then it it doesn't have the same same fullness. So that right. was wow. Wow. I mean, is there a connection? Because I like when Jesus talks about returning to his Father, elsewhere in in this discourse. Yeah. I mean, I've always connected that to his ascension, yeah. but you're you're connecting it more closely. It sounds like to his
1: crucifixion. I think that his glorification is connected to the cross uh, most nearly. The return to the Father, which he's also going to talk about on on Easter Sunday, and say that he has not yet ascended to, to my father and your father, my God and your God. That is connected to the ascension, but the way that they're connected in John is specifically, let's say through, through vocabulary, um, is that it has to do with Jesus's preparation of the disciples for his departure. So I I think that, that he he's beginning to shift there, starting at verse six because he's trying to prepare them in what is in this prayer that is overheard intentionally, I I, I believe. He's trying to prepare them for a time when he returns or goes away. And I think that that is the way that John is, you know, let's say interpreting or or unrolling uh, the fullness of the ascension. I think the glorification here is about the manifestation of who God is and what he wants for mankind in the eternal son of God who has taken on flesh. And that's, yeah. that's all seen at the cross.
0: Yeah. Well, and I think connecting it, especially to the, the fact that yes, Jesus, now the word of God has been made flesh and that's where we see his glory. Right. Like, I mean, yeah, I think that's a fantastic thing to keep in mind here. And that's the, the wonderful revelation that really is there at the cross Right. Man, what a what a fantastic what a fantastic thing to see here in John seventeen. So as you said, there is a, a transition, it seems, yeah. in verse six, yep. because now Jesus begins to speak about the disciples. And so just take us into take us into verse yeah. six. Let's I mean, we're not gonna get to everything, right, so right, let's right. just see where we yeah. go.
1: <laughs> yeah. The destiny of God's people who are called the people, whom you gave me out of the world in verse six, is a connection between their origin and their life that you see throughout John because John focuses so much on on where things came from and and especially who came from whom, because that's going to determine the way that people are. You know, it's, it's in John that you hear that you must be born again or born from above, born with a heavenly origin, or that Jesus Christ was not born of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man, right? So your origin is going to determine the life that you have and the people whom you gave me out of the world are specifically the father's gift to the son. So when you think about the church, you should think a little bit less about the nitty gritty realities of people's personalities and the ways that things work in your congregation and all the rest of it. There is a reality that not only if you're a pastor they don't belong to you i mean they're your people but sort of like on very temporary loan uh if you want to use the phrase my people or or my church or something like that but they're given to the son as a gift from the father the people whom you gave me out of the world because of that origin they are the fathers and they are the sons you gave them to me and they have kept your word that Verb keep appears all over the Bible. It's always important to understand that it's got a unity between hearing and living uh, or hearing and heeding. Uh, You know, like, are you listening to me? Kind of a sense. So they keep your word. They've held on to it. And for that reason, they know that everything you have given me is from you. So it is the people of God who know that there is no way to the father except through the son, but every time they're going to the son, they're, they're getting therefore to the father, right? Mm-hmm. So everything that you have given me is from you. So they've understood both that his words, but also his actions, including his crucifixion. And John is, John's crucifixion uh, account is, if I can say it this way, I think it's the most peaceful. And you, you, he calls attention to the fact that there were disciples there. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, the apostle John himself is there looking on at these things such that Mary can be committed to his care. So John is not quite so, I would say, he's certainly not as negative about the church as many, many Christians are. But it's not because John thinks that. Everyone is just absolutely wonderful and, you know, um, they've only had good pastors and, you know, everything has always been amazing. It's because John thinks usually about people more in terms of where they came from, that is their origin and, and in the case of the church, their divine origin as children of God than he does about the the nitty gritty realities of, you know, Hymenaeus and Alexander made shipwreck of their faith and and right. and and you know, Barnabas and Paul didn't agree about Mark and and stuff like that. And that's right. both perspectives I think are very helpful. I, I definitely tend towards not thinking like John. That's right. <laughs> but that's right. <laughs> but you know, I have a Pauline bias kind of in my yeah. entire life, but but um I I think it's very helpful because Jesus is acknowledging their origin. That's gonna be the ground of also his confidence that uh, they have received them the words that that the father gave the son they have received them and have come to know in truth that i came from you and they have believed that you sent me like they actually there are actually people who know the truth and believe he's convinced so jesus doesn't have that despair that you know the prophet elijah does when he's like i'm being hunted they're hunting my they're hunting me down like a dog and i'm the only person that believes any of this
0: yeah well, and I think that's especially striking in the in the context of the the upper room discourse in which oh, was it Thomas or philip they both uh, Philip is the one who says, Lord, show us the Father yeah, and that's enough and and jesus says have i have I been with you so long philip <laughs> you know, i mean right. in, in the context of, of several it seems misunderstandings on the parts of the disciples, yet here he speaks of them again as as those who have believed right. and I think that's a, a great comfort i think it it even i think it relates to the fact that John calls himself the beloved disciple, you know, I think that, I think that plays into that same, that same way of thinking that for John, it's all, it's all about, he's one loved by Jesus. And that's, that's enough, you know, here he's one who belongs to Jesus. I think that
1: that fits into that same thing you were saying. I think that John has his vastly different perspective, which here are simply in the words of our Lord. I mean, it's not just John or something. um, Yeah, that's Right. Right. Um, that vastly different perspective is so helpful because it brings to mind realities that we are generally prone to ignore because they are invisible. And I think about what we pray. I think it's in the proper preface at Christmas time that lo- that loving uh, this the Son manifest in the flesh, we may come to love those things which are not seen. And the love of those things which are not seen involves the heavenly origin and heavenly reality of God's people, which is really marvelous. And it's the kind of thing that usually people don't come to see until it's almost gone. You know? So the, the pastor stands up in the pulpit and you know, cries a little bit uh, at the beginning of a funeral sermon or at the beginning of um, you know, his, his farewell sermon he he's not going to cry a little bit on some given sunday in you know july 12 years into you know 20 years at that church because he's not aware that it's going to go away right now john has a lively sense and jesus here on the eve of his own death has an obviously lively sense of how passing most of those human things that are to which we pay so much attention and worry so much about and therefore how weighty the divine origin of God's people is in the whole scheme of things. Another thing that I think is is worth our, our time to talk about
0: here in this section is what Jesus says in verse 9 about, you know, he's not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me, and this distinction between the disciples and the world. Yeah. You mentioned world as one of John's distinctive vocabularies. Help us into some of that that we have in this text.
1: The distinction between the disciples and the world is there by virtue of their different origins. And because of that, the world is a place that can be diagnosed on the basis of its ways. So you can talk about worldly ways. That's a biblical way to talk. It's going to be described, for instance, in John's first letter as the pride of life, the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. That is a certain self-destructive pomp but those things are what they are not because you just need to clean up your act sonny but because in order to escape them you must be born again you have to get a new and a different and a heavenly origin because the reason that you're doing what you're doing which is self-destructive or hell-bound is because you don't have a divine origin if you have a divine origin, then you are going to wind up as the kind of person who is believing Jesus's words and believing that you have access to the Father because you have known the Son.
0: So, Doctor Coons, we've got about four minutes yeah. left here on mm-hmm. the morning. So, where? Again, with so much wonderful material here, how should we, how should we wrap things up on our section and, and help us to, to get ready for what else we're going to hear Jesus pray in this yeah. chapter?
1: Um, let's you know just wrap up where we wrapped up with our reading, which is the very—and I've said the word beautiful several times. I'll say it again. I'm not ashamed of the word—very beautiful verse at the end that you can imagine when the disciples are being persecuted when Peter is being crucified upside down, when they are going through the various things that they are going through, uh, to hear all mine are yours and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Mm -hmm. So that it, it will be enough for the disciple to be like his master, and it will be the master's glory actually that the disciple is what he is and lives how he does and dies the way that he does um paul will express things like this in galatians talking about the life he lives he lives by faith in the son of god um and talking about filling up what is lacking in christ's afflictions this sense of union with christ which is so keen and intense and personal uh all of those things are a reality for every Christian every day, the Son will also prepare us for these things which are to come, and especially that we will encounter great difficulty as he is about to himself in his own ministry, and that when we do that, the really key thing is that the Father will be keeping his church in his name which involves a holding on to the Son's word. That, that is what will be called in verse 17, for example, sanctification. He's going to make them holy by keeping them holding on to the word, and that is going to be their security in a world that's going to be, for them, absolutely chock full of, of insecurity. So this is all the Son preparing us for the life that we have in him, and that life will be marked by suffering, but that suffering he's taught us in him is, is in fact glory, and it's the glorification of the Father's name.
0: The Reverend Dr. Adam Kuntz is pastor and evangelist at Trinity Lutheran Church in Denver, Colorado. He's been helping us today to study John chapter 17, verses 1 to 10. Dr. Kuntz, thanks for being our guest today. Thank
1: you so much. It was my pleasure.
0: Jesus prays on Monday, Thursday for his own glorification, the glorification of the Son and the Father that is about to happen in his own crucifixion. And through that prayer, he strengthens his disciples for their ongoing life in him, that they would know that they are his, he is theirs, and their suffering will not separate them from him, but they will have the eternal life that he has promised in God. I am your host here on Sharp Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about the gospel according to St. John, please send us an email. Send that email to kfuo at kfuo.org. You can also use the open mic feature on the app to send a message to us. Either way, it's always a pleasure to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.